Anybody else like answered prayer here tonight? Anybody like answered prayer? have some great news to share with you guys. Uh, a couple months ago, a girl in our church fell off a cliff. Jake Gregory was her name, and many of you guys have been around and know that we've been praying for her and had a prayer vigil, had 500 people come out and pray for her, and that God would do a work in her life. It's exciting tonight to tell you that after a two months and uh, a week or so, uh, tomorrow at 3.15, Jake Gregory will be going home from the hospital. Isn't that amazing? As I've uh, spent a lot of time with Jake in her, in her room and just watching her understanding of the sovereignty of God um, open, a couple weeks ago I had a conversation with her and I just wanted to let you guys know about this conversation. I, I asked her, I said, Jake, so what if God doesn't heal you? Like, what if He didn't? What if somehow um, you were already in His presence with Him? Like, what, what does that mean, Jake, now for you? And she looked me in the eyes and she said, Mark, then to the glory of God. And so for me, as I walk away and I watch a little girl, 18 years old, get a picture of the sovereignty of God, I say, Amen. Anybody else? And if, and if friends, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, and if you truly, if I'm truly about the glory of God, then in unison together we say, whatever it takes, God, if it takes trial and tribulation, suffering, so that you would receive glory, then so be it. I love stories with strong main characters. Anybody else? I love stories like Jake because she's, such, she's an intriguing character. She's an awesome girl. She makes us laugh. I love movies with strong main characters. Anybody else? You know, we're just the main characters. has a lot of depth, like Dumb and Dumber. You know, just <laughs> strong, deep main characters that just, you know, Tommy Boy, just... You know, it's really, really good acting, you know. No, a couple of my favorite movies, I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen these before, but there's a movie called Braveheart. Um, any of you guys have ever seen that? It's a, kind of a popular flick. Uh, Gladiator's another one of my favorites. I love these movies because they have strong main characters. And they seem to dominate, you know. In fact, it's easy to tell that the whole story is about that main character, Right? It's interesting, like movies like Castaway. Have you guys seen Castaway? Tom Hanks and this volleyball Wilson, you know. It's really easy in that story to tell that Tom Hanks is clearly the main character of the story. I fear sometimes when it comes to Scripture that we get confused. Beginning in Luke chapter 22, and for those of you that are just joining us tonight, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. We begin to see the Passion Week of Christ, the last days of Jesus. Beginning in Luke chapter 22, we'll see 27 different individual characters. Chief priests. We'll see soldiers. We'll see all kinds of people that are around the surrounding. We'll see crowds. So it's 27 individuals plus all kinds of crowds. And I tell you what, for me, in the past, studying this Gospel, especially around Easter time, looking at all these characters, let me tell you something. What I've realized now more than ever is we've, we talk about all the time here at Matthias that every verse in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, is pointing to Christ. The Gospels are about revealing the fulfillment of Christ. And everything after the Gospels is pointing back to Christ. 
It's in this moment as we study the Passion Week of Jesus that I realize more than ever, throw any character in here. All 27, all of the crowds, all the people around the peripheral, throw them all in there. We must not get confused for a second. Every page of the Scripture is about Jesus. So Peter's denial, soldiers beating, all kinds of chaos is happening. This story is one character's story. It's one character. And how everything is playing to that character's glory. So I need you to join me tonight in a journey as we begin to wrestle with some hard stuff. And as we begin to see a Savior that goes through difficult things, may we never get confused about who this Scripture is about. Every piece of it is about the glory of King Jesus. And if you leave tonight confused about anything, then you've missed it, my friends. And so may we understand, now after all of this happened, that our lives are to constantly, like every other passage, be pointing back to the fulfillment of Christ in all of these promises through the Old Testament. Amen? So let's go together. Shall we dance? Thank you, all three of you. Wonderful. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Jason amazingly taught us the last week about Peter's denial. He's an interesting, interesting lad, isn't he? We saw him accepting this invitation to follow Christ with, away from me, Jesus, I'm a sinful man. In the early parts of Luke, you'll remember, he was at the transfiguration with Peter or with James and John. He was amidst the Jairus' daughter's healing. This is a guy who's always been around. And last week, he fails, he falls, he denies. And you'll remember, at the end of the story, Peter sees the eyes of Jesus. And the Scripture says that he weeps bitterly. To me, that's repentance, that's, that's not remorse. And that's a great invitation to you and I tonight to look at, that, to look at this passage with a heart of repentance and not, re, not remorse. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating Him. They blindfolded Him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? Now, apparently they know that Jesus is considered a prophet, right? Let me, let me explain to you guys a couple things, okay? Uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Name your son that, right? That he's the high priest. Now, there's a difference between a priest and a prophet. Listen to this. A prophet is someone who represents God to the people. A priest is someone who represents the people to God. Isn't it amazing that Jesus is both? Scripture calls him both a prophet, a priest, and a king. So he's both our representation to Father God, and he's God's representation and voice to us. It's brilliant, isn't it? What a Christ. What a God. And so in this, in this moment, we see soldiers who have heard about this idea that Jesus is, in fact, a prophet. Do you get the picture here? They're playing like pin the tail on the one who smacked him, you know? I mean, it's a blindfold, and they're mocking him, and they're giving him an opportunity to say, the one who just hit me is, think of a strong Hebrew name, uh, you know, what's that? Solomon, yeah, all right, so... Thank you. It was Solomon who hit me, and he's got, you know, six children. And I mean, it gave him that opportunity. It gave him the opportunity to prove it. Does anyone else find it interesting that he doesn't? 
Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he was talking to the disciples and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. So this is just the fulfillment of prophecy. And even more so in Isaiah 53, right? The Scripture clearly said, people will scorn Him, will scoff at Him, and He will not open His mouth. What a king. But for me, uh, this is the moment where things start to get emotional. Anyone else? All, all of us, or at least most of us, have seen the passion of the Christ. And this is the moment when the mockings, the beatings, begin to happen. In the last several years in ministry, I've been asked two questions, mostly, from people. The first question is this. What role does theology play in our daily walk with Christ? I say the word theology and like, you know, all of you CMS majors get all excited, you know. That's what you've been studying all day. They're clearly right over here. You know what I mean? Did you hear that? Yeah. And... And the second question is this. What role does, does my emotions play in this walk with Christ? Uh, we're, we're an emotional people, right? I'm not saying that we all cry all the time, but we get excited, we experience sorrow, we go through these different emotions. Can I share something with you? When I first saw the passion of the Christ, and I began to see this very vivid image of Jesus being mocked and beaten and insulted, and asked the first of four questions in this, who hit you? I mean, I wept the whole movie. Anybody else? I mean, I wept. I cried like a baby. And as I look back on my emotions, I want to share this with you in a moment of confession. I believe that my heart in those moments were mostly thinking, watching the lashing, and thinking to myself, He did that for me. Watching the bleeding, thinking that was poured out for me. Watching a Christ hurt and go through pain and thinking all of the while, that is for me, a sinner. There's a problem when bad theology meets emotion. When bad theology meets emotion, it becomes so self-centered. And when our emotion becomes self-centered, my friends, it can easily run our life. And I'm not just talking about theology anymore. I'm talking about in general. Anyone else? When emotion becomes so in-focused, it can ruin and wreck and guide our very existence. But can I paint a different picture for you? What happens when good theology meets emotion? What happens when strong, strong biblical understanding of who God is? Because when people ask me, what role does theology play in our daily walk with Christ? I think the cop-out answer, because people don't want to journey through the Scriptures, is it really doesn't matter. That's a bunch of just head knowledge. Well, let me tell you something. Our view of God is central to everything, my friends. How we see a sovereign, merciful, gracious God is critical to how we view the Scriptures. It's critical to how we live an obedient life. We talked about that a couple years ago. If we don't see God as who He is, Father, Son, and Spirits, it filters down to everything else. And so when strong theology meets emotion, something beautiful happens. And what I mean by that is, when we see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, do you notice in the prayer that he did not say, oh God, if there's any other way, take this cup of wrath from me, but I need to die for Mark Sikma. It didn't happen. He didn't say it. He said, may your will 
be done. It is about the Father 100% of the time in obedience. I'm not saying that you and I, as sinners, don't reap the benefits of the wrath of God being poured out on Christ and His resurrection making us alive again. I'm not saying that because we do, amen, thankfully. But what I am saying is that there's something beautiful when you and I experience emotion in awe of who Yahweh is and not because of who we are. And when those emotions collide, I'm I'm just going to confess to you, I need to get so much more emotional about who God is than I ever do about who I am. And man, when we can understand that, do you understand that when we watch the Passion, it changes our hearts. When we open the Scriptures, it changes the way we view them. We sit back and say, what a God who has an amazing plan to send a Savior in obedience to you who would humble Himself, coming down from the throne of God to die, be raised again so that we can experience everlasting life. That is a God we sit back and we can be emotional about. And so look, there's going to be many temptations through this to experience like the boyfriend-girlfriend Jesus. You know? The Jesus that makes us feel good inside. That's all about us. All about our life and our existence. And when you think that, friends, you've just misinterpreted the entire Gospel. The Gospel is the glory of Himself and everything that we are about the glory of Himself. And so I'm imploring you, I'm asking you, I'm needing prayer for myself. That when we journey through this, may we allow our emotions to run rampant when it comes to the awe of God. And I'm not just talking about crying. Emotion encompasses so many other things, my friends. Joy and sorrow and repentance. All of these things working together. Let's allow our hearts to let this word sink into ourselves. Verse 65. And they said many other insulting things to him. I wonder what that would have been. I wonder what those words would have sounded like. Do you guys get the picture? The Savior of the universe. Standing there. Taking it. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. When they hurled insults, he did not retaliate. Why doesn't he retaliate? Because it's the plan. Because it's fulfillment. Now this this is tough, isn't it? You're watching a king be mocked by people who will later stand before him. Now it starts to get a little personal, doesn't it? It starts to make you and I's hearts quiver. You see, I think it's easy for us in this moment to say, well, these soldiers are just a part of the plan. They're a part of fulfillment. And I would say, amen, they are. But I would also say, God's sovereignty never negates personal responsibility. And that's tough. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, isn't it? But I'm telling you right now, we're going to see a whole bunch of people who are fulfilling the Scripture who will be held responsible when they stand before God. And that's tough in the understanding of God's sovereignty, but that's who God is. Verse 66. At daybreak, um, this is literally when the sun comes up here, you know? Uh, That's what the Greek says. The council of the elders of the people both the chief priests and teachers of the law met together and Jesus was led before them. In verse 67, they ask, if you 
are the Christ tell us. A lot of interesting things happening here. This gathering of men is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin has started in the time of Moses. Seventy men comprised of Pharisees and scribes and chief priests plus the high priest. So 71 members in this Sanhedrin. Now what we're going to find is this Sanhedrin begins breaking all kinds of their own rules, which isn't Sanhedrin-esque-ish like, okay? They don't, normally, they don't normally do that. And here's the reality. If you want to study it, you can. Deuteronomy 15, 16, 17, 18. Look back in your scriptures tonight before you journey to bed and, and indulge in that. But we can know that God set up one of the best judiciary systems ever. It's clearly mapped out. And so the Sanhedrin from the time of Moses until the time now was this brilliantly created, rule-laden, rule-ridden just system. They didn't, they didn't break it. They followed it. And so at daybreak, because you couldn't hold a real trial at night, during the night, they meet together. Interestingly, when we comprise all the other Gospels, we know that there was a little, that there was a little muttering that was happening at night. They're breaking their own rules. But to make it look good... They gather in the morning and they ask Jesus the second question. And the second question is this. If you are the Christ, tell us. What does Christ mean? What's the implications of that word? Yeah. Messiah. If you are the Messiah, then why don't you tell us? Is anyone else interested in the fact that if you're a Pharisee, an elder, a teacher of the law, a scribe, You've been waiting your entire life to meet the Messiah. Your entire existence and profession has been to tell people and to communicate that the Messiah is coming. Don't you find it interesting that the Messiah is standing before them, this high Jewish court, and they ask him, not because they really care about his answer, but because they want to condemn him, are you the Messiah? Isn't, isn't it ironic, don't you think? Yeah? Now, look at this. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And I love this because it continues to show that no matter what's happening in the God-man, the fully God, fully man part of Christ, He is still peering through the hearts of men. He knows the motive of their question. And he says, look, if I did answer it for you, you would not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. Haven't we seen that recently, right? You guys remember when he asked him, so John's baptism, is it for, remember that? And they like sat there. And then they found themselves in a catch-22, and so they're just like, we're not going to answer. So it's in the same case. They know if they answer, then somehow strangely they're condemned. But if they don't, it's a weird thing. He says, you won't answer. So why would I respond? But look at this, verse 69. I love this. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. We know this. Not every member of the Jewish council was in agreement. In a few verses, we're going to look at a man who was here, a part of this council, who wanted to bury Jesus. We'll study that later. But in this moment, can you understand that there would have been some wrestling? From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the better Greek is, power God. Now stay with me here. 
To say the Son of Man, we've already studied that. It's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. This ancient historical context of the Messiah would be called the Son of Man. But to say seated at the right hand of God. Now this has way more implications. Hebrews chapter 8, put this passage up for me. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says this. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now to sit at the right hand of God is this fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 1, which is all about this idea of blessing. Whoever would sit at the right hand of God would be eternally and everlastingly blessed. And the next Hebrews passage, Hebrews 12, says this. This is awesome because this is a verse that we love to quote. Like this is one of the famous Jesus Jesus passages, but it's so brilliant if we look deeper. Look at this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, we'll come back to that part later tonight, I love that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What I love about that verse is the image sat down. It's an image of worthiness, isn't it? It's an image of here is the throne of God and there's one worthy to sit in the blessed right hand of God and it's Christ. And so the image of sitting down is this image of Christ taking his rightful spot that all along from Psalm 110 and before was pointing to Romans chapter 8, just saying Romans, get some of you excited. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Verse 34, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, we see the brilliant picture of prophet and priest. The right hand of God, if you guys understand, the high priest, like I taught a couple weeks ago, can only go in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement one time a year. But Christ, our high priest, the intercessor, sits where? At the right hand of God. Do you think that's pretty easy access? I certainly do. And so I believe that when we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, you understand the access that we have to Christ. It's brilliant, my friends, but there's something else here irony of individuals hearing as they judge Jesus that he'll sit to the right of the judgment seat of God. Seventy-one individuals getting ready to place judgment on the Messiah. And the judgment that they'll place is the one who will be sitting in judgment, my friends, to judge. Let me tell you something about Christ. If you wrongly judge him, he will rightly judge you. And in this moment, the council of the elders, the Sanhedrin, will wrongly judge Jesus. And in the day when they stand before him, he will rightly judge them, just like he will rightly judge you, which shows us why we need Christ. Because without him, my friends, you will stand before that judgment seat with nothing to hold on to. You need the grace of God. You're a depraved sinner. Your heart's wretched. And you need the blood poured out on the cross, my friends. That's the picture we get here. 
And again, for some of you guys, you're like, but, but again, they're just condemning him because they were supposed to. Never get confused. We always have personal responsibility. Romans 5 says, because one man sinned, we've all sinned. And we all fall wretched, depraved, underneath Adam. Verse 7, he says this. They all asked him the third question. Are you then the son of God? So first, are you a prophet? Second, are you Messiah? And third, are you the son of God? Now this has huge implications a little bit later, and we'll look at that. And Jesus responds with this. Look at this. You are right in saying, what's the word? I am. Does that remind anyone of any other passage in the scriptures? He stands uh, before Moses. So you should I tell them that you are. And what does he say? I am who I am. Interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, Scripture says this. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Isn't there something encouraging to know that you serve a God who calls himself I am? Like, you can give me a name, sure. But my name is everything, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He stands before them, and he says, I am who you're, who you're, who you're asking about. I am who, who you're saying. I am the Son of God. And then they said in verse 71, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips, which creates all kinds of problems. You couldn't condemn a person in the Sanhedrin by their own testimony. They're breaking their own laws all over the place. Why? This is tough. The hatred of the human heart, my friends. Do you guys understand how much they hate here? They're breaking their own laws. They're in secret moving around. They want this guy dead. You got look, it's hard for us to understand this, isn't it? I mean, we're sitting in these blue, you know, it's hard. But can we for a moment get this? They want Jesus dead. This isn't a movie. Okay, this isn't some mob scene. They want Christ dead. Their hearts are filled with anger and hatred and fear. without Christ, so is your heart. Scripture says that God is love. The opposite of love is to hate. And without God in your heart, you are filled with hatred. You may not realize it. You may be a good person. You may be moral. Have all kinds of things going for you. Have a great job, a beautiful wife, white picket fence. You may even love the Teletubbies. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Is that your only hope is that Christ would save that hatred-filled, wretched heart of yours. And so, my friends, again, just like we've done so many times through the passion of Jesus, we distance ourselves from the Pharisees, we distance ourselves from the Sanhedrin, we must not. That is us, and because of Christ, we can be something else. They hate him. They want him dead. He poses a threat 
And so just for a moment, feel that hatred in the air as they look at him. And one day they'll look at him again. And he will rightly judge what they wrongly judged. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Say that 30 times. Great name. He rules in Judea, which is the southern part, Palestine, from 26 AD to 36 AD. Talked about him a couple good Fridays ago a lot. Ends up washing his hands. We'll study that later. Pontius is an interesting character. The Jews hate him. Uh, Rightfully so. He's killed many of them. He's got a lot of blood on his hands. His primary, uh, primary mode of habitation is in Caesarea. I've been there. It's a beautiful place. But he's in Jerusalem. Why? Anyone? Passover. Okay? Remember 4th of July? Passover's great. He comes to Passover. Why? Because he's the Roman ruler that's going to help make sure that no uprisings happen. And so the whole assembly, do you get that? The whole assembly, 71 of them, rise up and they lead Jesus to Pilate, verse 2. And they began to accuse him before Pilate. Now, something shifts, right? The Sanhedrin is what? It's a Jewish group of people. Pilate is not Jewish, okay, by any stretch, okay? And so the accusations must shift. We go from a religious accusation. Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Now things shift a little bit in verse 2. They begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation, which sounds weird. I'll explain it here in a second. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ What's the next word? You see, to Pontius, claims to be Christ, whatever. But claims to be a king. Now, that's something that gets dicey in the Roman world. Why? Because there's only one king, and that king is Roman Emperor Tiberius. And on the coin of Tiberius, when we studied Jesus talking about uh, paying taxes, what did we learn was on that inscription? It's Tiberius, son of right? The divine. And so it's this image that Tiberius is the son of God. And so to tell Pilate, a Roman official, that this Christ claims to be a king, now what you're saying is, this guy thinks that he's bigger than Tiberius. And if you're bigger than Tiberius, then you're barking up the wrong tree. Are you guys with me? But he doesn't just say that. He says, this guy is subverting our nation. That literally means he's a revolutionary. He's causing uprising. He's getting people upset and angry and passionate. And then he also says he opposes paying taxes to Caesar, which can we agree, Luke chapter 20, that's bunk. What did he say? Give to Caesar. What is? See, all right? So that's clearly not true, which breaks another Sanhedrin in rule, right? And that's that you, I mean, you don't lie. So they've used his own testimony against him. They met during the night. Now they're making stuff up. Hatred. They want him dead. They want him dead, my friends. And so he says, are you uh, who claims to be Christ a king? Verse 3 says this. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This question has always, has always troubled me. The Jews are trying to kill him. And he's listening to the Jews trying to kill him. And the Jews accuse him. And notice that they didn't say he claims to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate, in his own mind, like brings the two together. Do you claim to be 
the king of the Jews. And here's what he says. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. You are the king of the Jews. You're a prophet. You're a Messiah. You are the son of God. Now the thing from this passage that's overwhelming to me, my friends, is there's something that happens in the life of Christ. From the Garden of Gethsemane on, He never looks back. From the Garden of Gethsemane on, blood like sweat droplets coming off of His head, He never looks back. He's completely in the will of God. And friends, are you with me? We don't see a fearful Jesus anymore. Is anyone else with me? Why don't we see a fearful Christ anymore? Why don't we see the angst in his heart? Because he surrendered it when he said, not my will, but your will be done. And at that moment in time, when the God-man, Jesus Christ, the prophet, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King, surrenders it all, there is no longer any fear. Can I encourage you with something tonight, church? Absolute surrender is what the gospel calls for. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To look at this story and to engulf this story is to say, this is the Christ I want to follow. Completely surrendered to the will of God. And when that happens, there is no And friends, can I be real with you? When I watch Peter deny the name of Jesus to a servant girl, I see an insecure man, fearful, lacking in his confidence of Christ, confused about who he is. Jesus has no confusion. And that Christ said, I must go so that I can give you the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit empowers you, it gives you this whole greater understanding of who I am. That's why post-resurrection, we don't see Peter fearing and doubting anymore. He says, flip me upside down, crucify me because I don't want to die like my Savior. I'm unworthy to die. Absolute surrender is the call on you and I's life. The beginning of today, we talked about how we liked movies. Braveheart, Gladiator, Tommy Boy. All these stories about great men, most of them, you know. When you absolutely surrender, what you're doing is you're surrendering your character to the story of Christ. You're saying, I don't care about me anymore. I'm done caring about my pride and my kingdom. I give you the character that I never had, but that I thought in my mind somehow that I was worth something or could do something. When you absolutely surrender, your character in this story becomes all about the glory of God. All the while never fearing. Because you don't have to. Why? Because at every turn, whether it be a beating, whether it be a trial, whether it be a loss of job, whatever it may be, you have it inside of you, this Christ who showed us the way, when you surrender to the will of God, you can say, I am who I am. I'm a believer, a follower of Christ. I need not be ashamed. 
I need not hold back. Go ahead, culture. Say what you will, and I'll love you anyway. Go ahead, world. Criticize and, and come at me with all of you've got, because Peter says that if that happens, then you're blessed because you bear the name of Christ. Tonight, the call is to follow a Christ who marches and continues to march right into the mouth of a storm, fearless, because he knows and believes and trusts the providence and greatness of a great God. So tonight, we partake in that ancient supper that was started way back in the time of Moses and that Jesus, like we learned a little bit ago in one sentence, changed the course of history when he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which they had never heard before, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And so they would take it and they would eat it and now all of a sudden this meal had completely different meaning than it had ever before. And then he took the cup, in my favorite line, friends, of this entire dinner, and he said, this is my blood, which represents the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And they drink it, and then they scatter. And he dies, and he raises again, and the Holy Spirit comes and this Rat Pack B-team moron group of disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, changed the course of human history because they put their hands in the air and said, I don't care about me anymore. My friends, tonight's a call to not care about you anymore. Your acceptance of the dinner of Christ, when you peel off that bread after examining your heart and dip it in the cup, what you're saying is I don't care about my character anymore in this story. All I care about is you. I want to surrender to your will. I want your glory to be had in my life. I want everything that I do to say, you are king. And if any moment I fail, God, would you be so quick to convict me that I may repent on my knees and come back to you. Tonight's call is to come back to Christ. It's to say, this isn't about you. This isn't about me. We are but a mist in the great story of Jesus. It's his story. He's the character. And we get the opportunity to reap the grace from that king. Let's pray. God, I ask that you'll bring us back to yourself. I ask God that tonight we'll surrender our need to feel like we're worth something to this world. I pray, God, that tonight we'll surrender a heart that wants to be somehow made known in a culture that wants to see our name on a piece of paper or a billboard or a pen. God, I pray tonight that you call us to repentance, that we're, that we're so tired of ourselves and we just want you. God, I pray tonight that you'll reveal your will, make it clear so that we can fearlessly stand in your perfect love because your scripture says that perfect love drives out all fear. May we find ourselves wrapped up in that. God, will you show your glory tonight? Will you diminish us? Will you humble us? Will you break us down? And will you show us, God, tonight 
that your story is not dependent on any of us. Come and join in this dinner after you've examined yourself. And if you are a believer tonight, then you're welcome to join in this dinner.